0: Okay, it's really good to see all of you here today. Today's going to be a slightly longer sermon and it requires a lot of concentration. So I think especially we need to go to God to ask Him for His help right now. So let's go our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to pray that we will be able to connect and contact with the world at the points in which it finds difficult to reconcile what your word says. And we just pray that as we listen to your word today, we listen to... Uh, the voice that speaks from Genesis, that we will understand how you are the Creator God and how that is a point of contact with what the world is trying to grapple with. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now the first words, okay, we've got 50 slides today, okay, so you have to follow. Okay. The first words of the Bible begin like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So as Christians, we believe that God created the world. Literally, He made the world right from its very beginning. Now, for Christians, uh, this is probably the second most important part of our faith, uh, just behind the reality that we believe that Jesus Christ is God. that He became a man, came to die, and to rise again after three days for the, the sake of our sins. And therefore, it allows us as Christians to give thanks to God, when we look outside the window, you see the greenery. You, you breathe the fresh air when Indonesia allows it. When uh, you know you swim in the ocean, it allows you to give thanks because you believe that God is the one who made all these things, created all these things, and it testifies to God and His goodness towards us. And that's why when we sang that hymn to begin with, that Johnson just sang, it, it captures that emotion, doesn't it? it? Captures the emotion. It says, "Oh my God, when I in awesome wonder." Consider all the worlds thy hand has made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. When through the woods and forest glades I wander, and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and see the brook, and feel the gentle breeze." Now, people often ask me then, how do we reconcile the idea of a creator God with the idea of evolution? Is evolution a challenge to what the Bible says about God? Is evolution a challenge to a creator God? Is evolution a mortal enemy of Christianity or can they exist together? Is it an uneasy coexistence or is it a friend of faith? So, I think that because this is a very emotional topic, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation, it's very important to step back, put aside all that stuff, and to really get down to getting our definitions right because we don't want to be muddling around in the middle or getting lots of foggy and confusion uh, happening. So, I think we want to make clear exactly what is being said uh, when we understand all these terms. So, first up, we believe that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, when we when we say that we believe that God is a creator God, He looks we look out the window, we say He made the world. But what is evolution? Okay, so evolution fundamentally at its heart explains the development of diversity of life in our planet. Okay, this is what evolution is. It's a scientific biological theory which explains the development of diversity. Of life on our planet. It was a biological theory first proposed by Charles Darwin in 1859 Okay, when he wrote this book, he published this book called uh, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. Okay, now I want you to remember that title because okay, that title is very very important and we'll get to it soon. But over the years, over the last 150 years, I think we can say that evolution focuses on the three main things. Okay, three main things. So if you look at the next slide, basically evolution says that all current species, you know, all the different species around us, uh, descend from a common ancestor. So all uh, mammals descend from more basic mammals, all vertebrae, come from earlier groups of vertebrates, <clears throat> And ultimately, all of them descended from a single cell form of life that lived 4 billion or 4.5 billion years ago. And these changes in the species occur gradually over time as a consequences of mutations in our genetic structure. And what happens is over time, the third thing is species come about or evolve because genetic mutations give them beneficial mutations which allow them to have more offspring than others. So the first thing I want to say and I think we all agree with this is evolution is a scientific theory which really doesn't have any direct statements, religious statements on God. It is not a religious theory. right? It's not some sort of philosophy. It's just science. And science is trying to bring about the most logical explanation for a set of observations of the phenomena that we observe around us. That's what science is about, it's trying to make sense of the world. So if you think about it this way, it's no different from in the past, right, when uh, people saw the stars and the planets and things like that, they'll say, oh no, how come the stars keep going around us and, and why is it they don't fall away and things like that, and it must be because God is keeping it up there. But then Isaac Newton, many, many years ago, came out with the law of gravitation, and through his law of gravitation, he explained how all the planets behave the way that they do. But no one says, because I believe in the law of gravity, therefore, I don't believe that God exists, right? I don't believe that God is not there. Because the law of gravity is a scientific explanation of a, of a natural phenomena that people observe. It doesn't say anything about God per se. It doesn't say, if I believe in gravity, it means I, I cannot believe in God, right? Doesn't, what's gravity got to do with God? It's just... It's just science. So in the same way, I think we want to strip away any misunderstandings about evolution. So evolution is just like the law of gravity. It is, it is a theory, a scientific theory to explain the phenomena that we see around us. It's not anti-God or pro-God in any way. It's just that Isaac Newton was a Christian. He was a Christian himself and he came up with a scientific theory for the phenomena around us. And evolution, uh, actually, as a scientific theory has really grown and developed over the last 150 years. Many scientists working on many fields agree that it is the best explanation for the origin of species. And it's it's such an overwhelmingly persuasive theory that today, really only a very small percentage of scientists uh, reject the theory of evolution. In fact, almost all Christian biologists accept evolution as well. Now, when uh, Charles Darwin uh, published his work you sort of think that, well, you know, many Christians would be up in arms and many, many, you know, Christians would be opposing it. But actually, interestingly enough, if we were to get into our time capsule and go back to 1859, we actually see that the, the, the earliest people who defended the theory of evolution were actually Christians. And Christians in 1859, when it first came out, didn't seem to have a big problem with the theory of evolution. So, okay, today, the beginning of my many, many slides. So there's this guy called... <clears throat> William Henry Dallinger, and uh, he was a Wesleyan pastor from 1861 to 1880, and he was later president of Wesley College, and he was a member of the Royal Society, which is like a science society in England. And uh, in 1887, he gave his unreserved acceptance for the theory of evolution. There's another guy called Sir George Stokes, who's a Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge University from 1849 to 1903, which is a position which was also held by Isaac Newton and today Stephen Hawking. And he said, as a Christian, even an extreme adoption of evolution is not inconsistent with theism. Uh, And in America, next slide, apparently the National Academy of Sciences in the United States were initially reluctant to accept Darwin's theory. But in 1880, it accepted uh, his theory mainly through the work and the uh, uh, the persuasion of a Christian biologist called Asa Gray, and even uh, the great Princeton theologian, I'm sure many of you have heard this guy called B.B. B. Warfield, I'm sure many of you, if you go to the bookshop, some of his books are still on sale in Singapore, he was a great theologian and this is what he said, I'm free to say for myself that I do not think that there is any general statement in the Bible, or any part of the account of creation, either as given in Genesis 1 or 2, or elsewhere alluded to, that need to be opposed to evolution now. this is very, very striking, because for those of you who have, uh, if you go to Google B.B. Warfield, because right, Google will tell you everything about him, he was a very, very strong supporter of the inerrancy of the Bible. So he felt that the Bible was truly God's word, and every part of it was not in error. It was all true. So for him to say that, shows that he had no problem with the theory of evolution. There was another guy called, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Chiodasus Dobzhansky, some Christian biologist, and he said nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. And in fact, when Darwin proposed his his mechanism for natural selection, he he didn't understand how natural selection came about. He didn't understand uh, genetics that we do today. But it was actually the work of a Belgian monk called Grigor Mendel, who was working on genetics on pea plants that people discovered how genetic traits were inherited. So I think that when you look at the theory of evolution, it's actually a very compelling uh, theory which early Christians, including theologians, didn't have a problem with. And one of the most compelling evidences for uh, evolution uh, came about because of fossil records. So if you if you go to you know I guess the different parts of the world they have these uh, like stacks of, of of geographical layering, okay? Where over millions of years you have stacks and stacks of uh, fossil records, and this is probably because you know these were like mud pits or tar pits where animals and everything got trapped in, and then over the years these tar pits sort of hardened up, and what you find in these tar pits is that in the early years, you find very basic animals like plants and things like that. But then as you get more and more recent, you find more complex animals. But also what you find is you find that the, the geographic strata for dinosaurs, you don't find any mammals, and you definitely don't find any humans. But then the, in the latter strata, you find humans, but you don't find dinosaurs. Right, so it seems as if there is some sort of evolution happening where from basic animals you become more and more complex animals. And even in everyday life, we assume evolution to a certain degree. So you know, when you take your antibiotics, when you get sick and you go to see the doctor, they give you different antibiotics after, the, after a while, right? Because the bacteria is evolving. The bacteria is evolving to have immunity to the old antibiotics and therefore they need to develop new strands of antibiotics to combat these bacteria. There's also this uh, phenomena which I was reading about. Okay, so if you look at this, uh, this is a sickle cell anima. Okay, actually, I know nothing of this, it's just because I've been reading for many, many months. Right? I'm not a scientist or a doctor in any way. But sickle cell enema is a blood disorder because your red blood cells have an abnormal shape apparently. It affects your muscles and causes muscle and joint stiffness and affects your life expectancy uh, to fall to below 50 years of age. Now in America, one out of 500 uh, black children have this condition. Okay, One out of 500 black children, but no white children but in sub-Saharan Africa, one-third of all people have this gene Don't you find that curious that one out of 500 people, the black people in America have it but no white people, but in Africa, one-third of people have it Why is this? How do we understand this? Well, it becomes because of evolution. Remember what evolution said? That certain genetic mutations allow a certain genetic selection to happen so that people will have more offspring and what happens is in Africa they found that this sickle cell anemia causes you to have resistance against malaria so you know malaria is a great killer in Africa so if you have this genetic abnormality it causes you to to live longer so therefore in Africa a lot more people with this abnormality are able to have more offspring and therefore form a bigger percentage of the population So Darwin's theory, by and large, has no problems in terms of understanding the phenomena that we see around us. Remember what the title of the book was? It was, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. So you might sort of ask, well, you know, if it's such a clear-cut biological scientific theory, then why are we... Why are we having this talk today, right? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, it makes sense of the world. We all agree with it. We all take antibiotics. It's quite an obvious thing, right? So, what's the big deal? Well, I think the problem is that uh, many atheists or many people who are anti-God take evolution and try to draw religious or theistic implications based on the theory of evolution. Cause here, uh, so I borrowed this book from the library, you can borrow from the library after me if you want, River Out of Eden, by a very noted atheist called Richard Dawkins. And this is what it says at the back of the book, which sort of summarizes the whole thing. It says, uh, he uses the metaphor of a river to represent the flow of information through time by means of a river, to represent the flow of information through time by means of DNA, which which is exactly what uh, Charles Darwin was saying, right? But then he changes it. You see, he argues that species come existence gradually by evolution rather than being created by God. And the review in the Sunday Times said that this writer of this book had proven that no God exists. Right? Because he's saying that evolution is opposed to God as a creator. Basically, he's saying that, you know, evolution. Is like the the fatal blow to a creator God, to the understanding of a creator God. They're at odds with one another. But can that really be true? Right? Does really evolution mean that there must be no creator God? Are they like mortal enemies to one another? Right? Is it the same way as fatal as Richard Dawkins, the atheist, is saying, you know, if you believe in evolution, well you just can't believe in a creator God. You know, you just gotta throw away your Bible, throw away your biblical understanding. Now first up, like I said before, evolution is a scientific theory. And when you think about it, when you research it, it's a very limited scientific theory because it deals with the development of the species in this world. Christians and Christian scientists have been able to reconcile evolution and creation because they see evolution as the mechanism by which God worked to bring about His creation. See, let's look again at what Charles Darwin says, right? So I look at it again. What does he say? On the origin of life. He never says the origin of life by means of natural selection. It is the origin of species by means of natural selection. It is the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. So Charles Darwin made it very clear that it was a theory to understand how different species come about in this world. In fact, Darwin assumed that life was already there. Evolution is not explaining how life came about, it's trying to understand how species came about from life that was already there. And what atheists do is they take Darwin's theory and they go beyond what Darwin's theory in evolution says to make implications for various things which are actually unrelated to what evolution is saying. So again, in another book that Richard Dawkins wrote, he said this, he said how the evolution, sorry, the evidence of evolution reveals a universe without design. Now I want you to think very clearly about what is being said here, okay? How is evolution, which explains diversity of life on this earth, linked to the universe? They are actually two different things, when you think about it. Evolution explains how life comes about in different species on earth, but it doesn't say anything about the universe. He right? actually trying to use a very small, limited theory, scientific theory and trying to extrapolate it to a much bigger theory. In fact, this other guy, uh, Daniel Dennett, you might actually have heard of him as well, he uses evolution to explain everything, cosmology, psychology, culture, ethics, politics, religion, which goes beyond, way beyond what evolution is trying to say. See, ultimately, evolution as a theory, and that's why I said definitions are very important, right? you must define what it means. Evolution itself doesn't speak of the origin of life, it speaks of the origin of species. And Darwin himself never talks about how life comes about. Interestingly enough, what evolution does not answer, the Bible seeks to answer, right? Because evolution doesn't say anything about the creation of the world, the universe, the galaxies, but the Bible does. See, that's why as Christians, we should never fear science. Science is the Bible's friend. So think about it, right? In Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Now this is a remarkable statement. It is truly remarkable because it is really unique among many religions. If you go back in time, if you go, if there's so many strands of science this touches, right? If you go back in time, if you go to ancient religions, among the ancient religions, they always believed that the creation of the world came about because gods made the world with stuff that was already there. Right, you go back to all the ancient religions in the ancient Middle East, in other parts of you know, Europe, they always say the creation of the world came about because God's made things with stuff which was already there. The other religions which speak of an endless cycle of time. Right? Time just keeps going on and on, it's like a big circle. Right? I'm sure you can think of different religions which have a cycle of time. But the Bible speaks of a very specific creation event. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And it speaks very specifically of how that happens, right? Because it says in verse 2, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And He separated the light from darkness. And He called light day. And darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now do you notice a problem here? The first problem is, the first thing that God created was light. But if you look in the Genesis account, when was the sun created? Uh, you know, you're supposed to pay attention when the Bible reading is happening. When was the sun created? It was the fourth day. Now, how is that possible? Okay, let's say I'm the ancient fellow who writes the book of Genesis. In those days, we have no light bulbs, right? We have no electricity, no nuclear power. We have nothing. All we have is agriculture. I'm just a farming person. That's all we have. We, we, we make, uh, we, we look after sheep and we grow. Crops. So for, for me, what is light associated with? Light must be associated with the sun. How can I have the su- how can I have light without sun? But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says God in the beginning created light. The first thing. This guy must be really illogical, right? How can there be light without sun? Well, it's only something that modern science has been able to make sense of in this last century, or the century before. See, in the 1920s, there's this astronomer called uh, Edwin Hubble. You know, have you heard of Edwin Hubble? He was the one who made the Hubble uh, the, the telescope thing, right? And also now they put made, they named this thing up in the sky over him, right? Anyway. His discovery was that he, he was an astronomer and what he did was he had these really powerful, really powerful telescopes and he realized that the universe and the galaxies and the planets seemed to be hurtling away from each other at a really really fantastic speed in fact the space seems to be getting bigger and bigger and uh, scientists uh, extrapolating backwards realized that all the galaxies came from a common point of origin and that there was a singular event which caused the beginning of the universes which is called the Big Bang Theory. Right? Right. So basically what happened during the Big Bang was that there was a singularity, that means something Something happened, one event which caused all the universes to come about. Right? And that was about 15 billion years ago they calculated And there was light, and when this light happened, it caused this massive explosion. And the sun and the stars only came into existence billions of years later. So actually, what the Bible says is true, in the beginning was light. That was the beginning of the universe as we know. In fact, as scientists say, when that singular event happened, that singularity with the creation of the universe came about the creation of time that we understand. The creation of the laws of physics, the creation of the laws of chemistry, everything as we know it today comes about because of that singular event. And the Big Bang event theory is how we understand the world around us, the galaxies, the universes, and how we understand Genesis. Right? Isn't it amazing? So, many, many years later, there was this guy called Arno Penzias. Ah, here he is. And he won the Nobel Prize uh, for oh see, oh, I got corrected it. Okay. There was some spelling error. For the discovery that actually there's a there's this cosmic background radiation which exists in this world. I don't know how they calculate all these things, right? There's this cosmic background radiation which which corroborates the Big Bang. Like that's this residual radiation which is happening all around us, which actually corroborates that the Big Bang actually happened the way that people theorized it did. And this is what he said. The best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted, had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. And then this other astronomer, Robert Jastrow says, For the scientist who's lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the, fo- the final rock. He's greeted by a band of theologians who's been sitting there for centuries. Now, you see, the Big Bang is different from evolution. Evolution doesn't explain the Big Bang. Evolution has nothing to do with the Big Bang. See, atheists basically say that the universe is, and there's nothing more to it. But the problem with the Big Bang is that there's a rule which says everything must have a cause. Everything must have a cause. I'm driving along the road, I see a car suddenly change direction. There must be a cause. Either another car hit it, hit a tree, or the driver changed the steering wheel. There must be a cause. So the Big Bang itself must have a cause. Where does the energy come from to create that that light that causes the universe? The sun is so full of energy, where does the energy come from? the energy comes from outside itself, from God himself. See, the atheists can't say evolution caused the creation of this universe and the galaxies. Evolution only speaks about the diversity of species. So evolution itself is very limited. It doesn't speak of the creation of the universe. And neither does evolution explain the beginning of life. Remember we said that even Darwin himself assumed that life was already there. Evolution is a theory how life changes over time to create different species, not how life began in the beginning. A biologist, uh, this Franklin Harrell, says that the origin of life is one of the world's unsolved mysteries in science. See, science still can't explain how life comes about. Now, if you think about it, uh, like this Franklin Harrell said, right? even a bacterial cell displays levels of regularity and complexity that exceed by orders of magnitude anything found in the non-living world So even the simplest living cells are much, much more complicated than non-living things So they were saying that even the simplest living cell has more information the multiple sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay, I, I don't know. Probably for the modern generation, they don't know what that is. But I used to have that in my. In my, my parents bought it for me in the hope that I'd read it, so they put it beside my bedside. I was like, it's like this many many books, right? Okay, so it's like many many times of the information." So think of the most complicated non-living thing that you can think of. Uh, think of a big airplane. Airplanes are very complicated, right? They take years to design, they take years to build. It's not like Like, you know, hey, go to, uh, is it it Q10 or whatever, and order your your airplane, right? You know, it's like it takes years to design, years to build. Now, people estimate that the age of the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Okay, I can't conceptualize that, but it sounds like a very long time. The first traces of life go back to 3.5 to 4 billion years old. So, life comes about on Earth one or half a billion years after the earth was formed, which is a relatively short amount of time. Now many atheists will say, well, it just happens by chance, right? I mean, it can't be a creator God, it just happens by chance. In fact, Richard Dawkins in the book that I borrowed from the library, this is what he says, right? And this is the first paragraph that he writes. He says, but when the ricochet, he, he compares it to playing billiards, okay? So, you know, you all play billiards or pool, when the ricochets or the atomic billiards chance to put together an object that has certain seeming, seemingly innocent property, something momentous happens in the universe so he's saying that basically when the atomic billiards come together to create life right, and life is the ability to replicate itself, he defines then it's by chance, these things happen by chance, you know, it's like billiards, it just happens But let's consider that for a moment. How unlikely that chance is. So we already said that the simplest life form is much, much, much more complicated than an airplane, right? Do we agree with that? Imagine, what they're basically saying is you put together a whole big tub full of the airplane parts and you just keep stirring it over and over again for one billion years. Can you come out of an airplane? It sounds pretty... Unlikely, right? Imagine if it's not just the airplane parts, but you just boil down the parts of the airplane into these different uh, 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 materials. Instead of having like all the parts, you just have glass and plastic and rubber and you just then mix it up again for another billion years. What are the chances of coming off an airplane? Even less. Imagine if you took that whole bathtub or that big tub full of uh, airplane parts and you just boiled it down to atoms the hydrogens and the the oxygens, and you just kept stirring it for a billion years, can you come up with an airplane? Well, it seems even more unlikely, right? But that's what they are asking us to believe, that without God, life just comes about by chance. But even more than that, it's not just the creation of life, you need need an environment for life to take place. So think about it, it's not just life itself, you need an environment for life to be able to exist in the beginning. So, physicists uh, call this the anthropic principle, right? What do what you need for life to exist? So, again, I'm not a scientist. Maybe I should get Johnson to explain all these things, right? So, you need nuclear force, apparently, to hold the nucleus together. Who knew? I, th- I always thought nuclear force was actually energy, but you need nuclear force to hold the nucleus together. You need r- radioactive decay, I also don't know what it is, electromagnetic force, gravitational force. But apparently, in order to, for these things to happen, if you look up here, it's almost as if like, you have multiple, multiple dials, and every one of them has to be set exactly right in relationship to one another for life to exist. So even if any of these dials were, were out by a little bit, it would affect the other dials and life, there wouldn't be conditions for life. So scientists have tried to calculate the probability of this anthropic principle. Considering all the different values and all the elements and everything like nuclear energy, chemicals and everything, what are the chances that you have the environment for the possibility of life to exist? And this is what it says. This is the ratio. 1 to 10 times 229. So there's 1 out of 10 times 229 zeros. That is that is the probability of having an environment for life to exist. This is what Stephen Hawking said, right? You all know Stephen Hawking. He's the very bright guy in the wheelchair. He said the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part of a hundred thousand million million. The universe would have re collapsed before it even reached its present size. If it was greater, I didn't this, if it was greater, there would be no stars because it would be too diffuse, diffuse for gravity to, to gather the matter together. Okay, now, this is all too complicated for me. But apparently, it's not just expansion, right? But the density of the universe is very, very important. Like, how dense it is. I don't know how this works, right? But they said that the precision of the density change cannot be more than this amount. Next slide. Zero point, I don't know, many, many zero percent, right? The density of the universe cannot change by more than this because if not, everything sort of becomes too, too dense and there's no more life. Now, for someone like Richard Dawkins, he says it's just chance, right? And, and why is it just chance? Well, what he writes is this, right? He says... However improbable the origin of life might be, it happened this way because we are here. However improbable the origin of life might be, it happened this, this way because we are here. Now that is not a very, very satisfactory explanation, right? You can't say because I'm here, therefore it must be chance. It's, it's, a, it's illogical it's an illogical, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a fallacy. It's just like saying, okay, suppose you're to be executed by a firing squad, and we tie you to a post and blind for you, and then they shoot at you the first time, and then they miss, everybody misses. And then they shoot at you again. And then they shoot at you again and again, ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times, a million times, and every time they miss you, in fact, they miss you 100,000 million million times. Can you then say, well, I was just lucky? You can't, right? Because logically, it doesn't make sense. You can't say that just because they all miss, therefore it must all be chance. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very unsatisfying explanation. But this Cambridge uh, University astronomer gave this answer. He says, A common sense interpretation of the fact suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seems to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Now this guy, Fred Hoyle, he's not a Christian. Okay, He doesn't believe in God. He's agnostic. But what he's saying is the the, the chances of these things happening are so so overwhelmingly slim that it must be that there is a grander plan behind it. They don't want to call it God, but there is something else there, right? So this guy Freeman Dyson, supposedly one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century, said, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. See, the problem is not with evolution. I think the problem is with evolutionism or what they call fundamentalist Darwinism. You see, remember I said the definitions are very important, right? So evolution is a scientific theory, a biological theory, which explains the origin of species, not life. But evolutionism or fundamentalist Darwinism is, a, is like a political ideology which goes beyond science, which tries to, to say that there, there can be no God and try to explain away God. Now, the question that many Christians will then have is, if, if it's so straightforward, then why is it today there seems to be this conflict between creation and evolution? Why is it, if the early Christians had no problem with evolution, why is it today, it seems like, there seems to be this problem? Like I said, some of the strongest supporters of Darwin himself uh, were Christians, right? And, and in fact, Darwin was actually a Christian as well, to begin with, and he was buried a Christian, well, I think part of the problem is because, um, there are very strong forces, especially coming out of America, which want to argue for a young earth view. Okay, so another different, young earth is where they believe that you just read the Bible literally and the Bible, and the Bible says that the earth is a very, very, it's only like 10,000 years old or something like that. And, uh, you might have heard this, this is one of the most popular proponents. This guy called Ken Ham. Next one. Ken Ham. And his, uh, organization answers in Genesis. I think there are whole talks in Singapore too. I've I've got invitations um, from them before. But at the time when Darwin, in the end of the 19th century, talked about the theory of evolution, um, it wasn't really a very, very big deal in the sense because there were many different views about Genesis and how the world was created. So, if you look in terms of creeds and doctrines, uh, there are no doctrinal statements or creeds in any of the denominations which say the earth must be created in seven days. It's just one of the readings of the Bible. In fact, when you look at the most influential Christian theologians and thinkers over the centuries, before Darwin, many of them already said that the, the, the Genesis 1 and 2 cannot be let, read literally. So many of you would know this guy called Augustine. Right? Any of you know Augustine? Augustine is a very, very famous theologian. He was probably the most influential thinker of the first 1,000 years of the church. And he wrote that he did not have a literal reading of the opening chapters of Genesis. Uh, Have you all heard of Thomas Aquinas? I'm sure many of you have heard of Thomas Aquinas as well. So Thomas Aquinas, I'm sure they all know this, but, but... But Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century theologian. He ranks up there with Luther and Calvin, and he said that he did not feel there was a tension between science and the opening of Genesis. In fact, Origen uh, was a 3rd century theologian, which was very, very, he was a very prominent person. You go look him up, Origen. And this is what he said. He was uh, born and lived 200 years after Jesus Christ. He was one of the early church leaders, right? He said, what person of intelligence, I ask, will consider as a reasonable statement that the first and the second and the third day in which they are said to be both morning and evening existed without sun, moon or stars, while the first day was even without heaven. I do not think anyone will doubt that there are, these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history. See, the problem here seems it's not so much the problem with evolution, but a wrong way of reading the Bible, right? Because one of the key rules of reading the Bible is to read the Bible in context. Context in light of the chapter, in light of the book of the Bible. And reading the Bible in context means that you must be sensitive and understand the type of literature, the genre of the literature in which God's truth is presented in. So when we read Luke chapter 1, which is up here, you can see very clearly that it is written in a historical format. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. See, this is historical narrative and it should be read as such. But when you read Genesis as we just read, right, you notice when we did our responsive reading and the Bible reading, there were two accounts of creation almost. Right? There was the first account which was divided into seven days, then there was another account in the Garden of Eden. And they're both slightly different and also have slightly different chronological order. But both of them are retelling something for a different purpose. In fact, someone said that if the Bible has started in Genesis chapter 2, you wouldn't miss that Genesis chapter 1 was missing. You notice that if you imagine if you you lost somehow, you lost Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 could stand by itself as the beginning of the Bible. So therefore, the, the type of genre in Genesis, obviously, is for a different intent than just a, a plain historical retelling. In fact, again, if you look at this section right, of the Bible, you notice that on the third day, God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit of seed in it, according to its various kinds, and it was so... The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and this morning, the third day. And then on verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day and the night. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let, the light, let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth. And this was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from darkness. And God saw there was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now what is wrong with these two days? In terms of logical, chronological uh, sequence, what's wrong with it? Okay, you're all not farmers, that's the problem. How can you have plants grow without sun? You notice that, how do you have plants growing when there's no sun? And don't forget, these people live in agricultural society. How can you have the plants before the sun? Does it make sense, right? But God is not stupid. We know God is not stupid. God inspires His word. We know that God was able to raise Jesus from the dead. So obviously, He knows what He's doing. But well, what people have understood creation, Genesis 1 and 2, for many, many years, even way, way in the medieval church, was day 1 to 3, if you have a look up here in the next slide, right, is the creation of the heavens and earth, the dry land, the sky, water, plants. And then day 4 to 6, the sun, stars, and moon, living animals, uh, man or woman. Many people see it as uh, the creation of living conditions and then the representing of the filling of those living conditions. right? It's like the frame or the structure, and then you fill it up with the content. So in the medieval church, they call it the separation and then the adornment. Right? So it's like you have the structure which God makes and then there's a filling of it. So it's not meant to be a, a strict chronological thing trying to explain science, even though there is some things which I said that we can understand like the beginning of this, the world. But the theological point which is trying to be made is that God is an orderly God, the goodness of creation, the creation is actually different from God and we, we do not worship creation, the central place of men and women in creation and the place of the Sabbath rest. See, so we're not meant to then use the seven days and read it literally, but we're meant to see it in the genre and the style that it is, to, to understand what it's trying to say about God, even though it does say things about science in its beginning. So, in conclusion, when we look at all these things, right, that's why I said definition is very important. I don't think that there is a, there's a, there's a, there's a war between creation and evolution. I think evolution and creation are actually good friends. Alright, the problem is, is when people get confused and muddle-headed and foggy in their thinking. It's when atheists take evolution and try to make it say more than what it's actually saying, from its limited scientific biological theory of the origin of species, and try to make it explain life itself. I think what happens is when Christians read their Bibles wrongly, and defensively try to reject evolution and say there must be a strict seven day creation. See in the end, I've read uh, quite a few books trying to debunk Christianity Christianity, uh, through evolution. But again, that doesn't make sense to me. You see why? Because Christianity is about a historical figure. The Bible always goes on about Jesus being a historical figure, what he did, what he said, what was recorded and witnessed by multitudes of people. Evolution is a scientific theory explaining the origin of species. So history and evolution are two different things. How do you explain history and event? Using evolution, you can't. They're two different things totally. right? So, again, in John chapter 21, right, it tells you what he's trying to do, what what the Gospel of John is trying to do. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. See, how do you... How do you use evolution to, to, to try to debunk history? You can't. They're two separate different things. So, if you're here today and you're confused about evolution and creation, if, 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 if somehow you feel that this has stopped you from coming to know God better, to know Jesus, then I want to tell you that there is no conflict. There's no conflict between a creator God and evolution. I'd like to challenge you if you're a Christian and you feel confused by this and somehow you're scared of evolution or scared of science that to tell you that actually there is no fear, there should be no fear there. There are many, many Christians over the centuries, many Christian scientists who have no problem with evolution. Jesus is a historical figure. He truly came to die, to live again. He died for your sins. Evolution has nothing to do with history. And actually evolution works hand in hand with creation. And I think that actually in this way as we come to understand evolution and creation, if we understand how God works in this world, all the more we give thanks that we are actually alive and that we are given a world that we can live in because it is almost an impossibility to have life according to what we understand from science. To just be here breathing, seeing, listening to me is a miracle. And the more and more I read, the more I realize it is a miracle that we are even here today. The chance of life is so infinitesimally small that it's a miracle that we are here today. And actually, to have life itself helps us see that we need to find God. That only God could cause this to come about. So I want to end with this quote from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. You see, actually, when you consider science and what science says about the world, we we begin more and more to marvel that there is life and we need to see that we need to know our maker. We need to know our, our creator. And when we realize how impossible that we have life itself, all the more, if we don't acknowledge God, God who made us, God who placed us in this wonderful world, then it is a sin. It is a sin because it's actually... Showing our high-handedness to say that God, who did this great thing, is not there and we don't need to thank Him for it. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for the miracle of life. We thank you for the miracle of the creation of this world. We thank you for science which seeks to understand the phenomena around us. But dear Father, help us to see that just because we understand uh, by observation, by science, how some of these things come about. But yet, we do not really understand why these laws are there. Why is there a law of gravity? Why is there uh, uh, this theory of evolution? Why is it you've, you've formed these things into the fabric of this world which came about? Help us to marvel and help us to see that science cannot replace you, our Creator. We may understand the mechanism, but we do not understand the power of the Maker. Dear Father, for those of us here today who are sincerely seeking You, we pray that You will help them to see that there is no contradiction between science and the Creator God. We pray that they will be able to seek the historical Jesus and to know Your Son who died to save people from their sins. We pray for us today as people who are strong believers in Jesus, that we will see that there is really no reason to be fearful of science or evolution but rather to understand it by what it's really saying. And that by understanding it, we can marvel all the more that you are such a marvelous God and that uh, what a great God you are and that we can enjoy your nature thanking you for it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.